What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, that ain't bad. Man, I'm so happy. Welcome to the Chase Outdoors podcast. Today I got uh, the whole crew back together and we are going to discuss some Arizona elk hunting and some strategies that honestly these strategies should, I would assume, carry forth uh, into other states. I know Josh, you've done a little bit of Colorado elk hunting. Um, I haven't hunted elk out of state, but I'd imagine that the strategies, um, the stuff that we're going to talk about is relatively similar. I got Dylan Curry to my left. Josh Kirchner, the dialed-in hunter across the table, and Cole Kemp with me, guys. Thanks for joining me, and I'm excited to talk about uh, elk hunting. Quick update, we've been bear hunting a lot, been out uh, two weekends in a row, and I've had ample opportunities to, <laughs> to, to, to harvest a bear. Unfortunately, um, yeah, I mean, when I was driving home with Cole just was having those thoughts it's like how is there nothing in the back of the truck right you, now you've had a lot of shooting practice i've had practice and it's not it's not way off uh-huh. it's not bad you know Inches. everything's been really close but at the end of the day i just uh i haven't been able to get it done you guys got any updates you want to share anybody got anything i've been i went scouting you went because you you have an elk hunt coming up in september mm-hmm. yep yep went scouting for elk and uh Let's be honest. I was really out there uh, checking my cameras for bears. For bears, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it's actually an interesting topic. Last year, I put pretty minimal amount of time into scouting for my archery elk hunt. I got another one this year. I think I'll put a little bit more time in. But mm-hmm. uh, my philosophy is on that that going into that hunt, you don't have to put a tremendous amount of time into scouting those units. In fact. If you find a good bull before your hunt, I think the odds are that you're not going to really be able to locate that. You might be able to early in the hunt, but I don't think that you're going to have a good swing at hunting that bull. That's what know. I was talking about with you last year when you had your archery tag. What's the point of going scouting in early July when they're in velvet when as soon as they strip their velvet, those bulls are going to up and move. I, you know, you're, find you're, the cows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cows. <laughs> you're better off to wait until you know the weekend before your hunt to go out right. and scout. Yeah. Well, that being said, I actually the bull that I ended up shooting last year, a friend of mine had a trail camera picture of it a couple hundred yards from where I actually shot the bull. So theoretically, if he would have had that tag, he could have said, you know, I've been scouting this, had that, and then made it happen. But there was different pressure factors and things that can contribute to where you know that elk might be. So I thought it'd be cool to kind of dive in a little bit into the nat- natural history of elk in Arizona. And I found some information on the Arizona Game and Fish website. Um, I've heard a lot of different stories about how many elk Arizona used to have originally, like pre-1900s. And according to Game and Fish, a lot of those elk were actually killed off before 1900, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know why they would have killed off the elk. Like, I, you know, you hear the stories about, like, the gray wolf being killed off, which makes sense for the agriculture people at the time. I had a tough time wrapping my head around, like, why would they have eliminated uh, that species? I think it's pretty much the same story yeah. as every other yeah. giant, you know, popular game animal in North America. They got hunted with no sort of regulation, and cattle coming in, and westward human expansion, and human pressures, and there was... At, early 1900s Arizona's not a state there's there's nobody regulating any sort of harvest yeah which I don't know I think that's that's interesting but at the same time like I feel like ungulates are looked at as a species that are manageable and that you just don't wipe out so the fact that you know they they came to a point where there really wasn't any elk left in the state that surprised me Uh, but fortunately for us right they went through uh, a process to reintroduce some elk into Arizona. Originally, they were distributed from, you know, the White and Blue Mountains along the, ro- the Mogollon Rim and into the San Francisco Peaks, really, which is still to this day phenomenal elk country. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of us are hunting our elk at. Uh, but in 1913, they brought 83 Yellowstone elk to Arizona. Now, like, I want to talk about this for a second. In 1913, how did they get 83 elk? From Yellowstone to Arizona. Like, I thought about that when I read that fact. Because now you hear the stories um, about them taking them to the Midwest. Yeah. Cole and I went to Game and Fish. And the gentleman that we spoke to had an elk fetus in, uh-huh. his, in a jar in his office. And we're like, how do you get an elk fetus? You know, it's like we kind of posed the question. 
And he told us that one of the elk that they tried to capture with a helicopter, like fell out of the net, fell out of the net, broke its neck. So they ended up keeping, like, obviously the elk died, found out it was pregnant and he got to keep the fetus. But like part of the group that they were sending to West Virginia. West Virginia. Correct. Exactly. But it makes sense to us. It's like, okay, you know, you use a net and a helicopter. They're mm-hmm. going to pick it up, and then we're going to use something to transport it. Well, they used <laughs> to just use cowboys and horses and put them on a train car and ship them around like oh, they do with the other animals. I couldn't imagine trying to herd 83 wild elk from Yellowstone to Arizona through the passes and, like, what that... Well, the interesting thing, too, is they got them from Yellowstone. The elk used to be ubiquitous across North America, almost 10 million on the continent, supposedly at point of european contact from all the way from the east coast to the intermountain west and california and multiple multiple subspecies of them and when all this started happening with different big game species dying off all around north america as humans expanded we go from 10 million at european contact to only 90,000 animals and almost half of those were in yellowstone so that it was the reserve to go and make all these transplants into every other state was out of the Yellowstone National Park. Which is interesting. So they took those 83 Yellowstone elk, reintroduced them into the Chevron Creek area. Um, Additional introduction areas were up by Alpine and by Williams, which again, still to this day, are phenomenal elk habitat. It wasn't until 1935, until the first established elk hunt took place and i read in that information that they gave out 266 bull tags 145 of those guys were successful which is like imagine at that time man it would mean that the way that they hunted mm-hmm. the elk with the way they were killing the elk completely different I, they probably didn't have the traditional archer these guys are probably out there hunting elk with you know lever action 30 30 mm-hmm. is what i'm picturing 100%. 100 yards at best cowboys for sure take that number compare it to now just general tags in our state gave out 14,684 general tags in 2018. Is that like cow hunts, bull hunts? Yeah, every, correct. Like across that's, the board. That's just tags. the general tags, not counting like any of the youth hunts or anything like that. I think it's safe to say that we have a very good established population in the state. And I think in some areas like uh, central Arizona by Payson, I actually think the elk are like beginning to overrun areas oh yeah like you'll see the elk in the transition region and rye in the low desert which historically when i grew up and i dylan i don't know if you could speak on this i didn't ever see elk in those ranges like growing up and i remember spotlighting as a kid we would go out uh to select areas up there and we would see a ton of deer didn't see a lot of elk now for me up in that country it's like rare to get a deer on camera and i think that there's a little competition they keep popping up in weird there's elk in in 22 south all, all over in the matazels and the desert and and low place low elevation places in 21 and in in toward west towards kingman there's elk in places that i wouldn't necessarily expect to see elk and elk popped up in like the catalinas and, and weird <laughs> places like that that just up and walk to a new place right but that also makes me wonder the the subspecies of elk that we had here before were the miriam's elk that were extirpated in late 1800s early 1900s and they weren't necessarily in all of these places historically they don't talk about elk in places like the matazels at that right. time period so are the rockies that are here now the, are, are they almost better adapted to the habitat that that they go into those places it's, where, it's do interesting you, do you know where the miriams uh, originated within arizona so that, that same that Alpine Unit One Twenty Seven, yeah. the, the historical five eight that area, the historical distribution and, and of New Mexico, Arizona. Yeah, according to Game and Fish, like I said earlier, the historical distribution were the White Mountains, Blue Mountains, along the Mogollon Rim, and to the San Francisco Peaks, which to me is all really high elevation country. It's just right. like they didn't, you know, if they would have been easy for them to include Matazal Wilderness or Four Peaks or something along those lines if they had them there, but. The question about this that I want to ask you guys, why is it okay to reintroduce elk, but it's not okay to reintroduce wolves? When we almost right here in the same podcast just said, oh, you know, for the same reason they eliminated the wolves more or less is why they eliminated the elk. So like, why, why is a hunting culture, why are we like, oh, sweet, grow really big horns. This is going to be awesome to hunt. Nobody is like, 
Well, okay, I shouldn't say nobody. I'm sure there's people that are opposed to them reintroducing in Kentucky, but it's not like the wolf. Like, what's your guys' thought process on why we're going to bring an elk in? And I would feel like the opposition to, and there is lots of opposition to reintroductions back to East is the same opposition we would have had had we introduced elk later in Arizona Mm -hmm. is that it's not technically the same kind of elk that was here because you had the Eastern subspecies is what was there. So we're introducing a very similar animal, but it's not necessarily genetically identical to what was there in the past. And I think it's the same argument you could make with the Mexican gray wolves in Arizona is they come from such a small, like a dozen animals or so, that there's no genetic diversity in them. And the historic range in Arizona isn't in places where wolves have been showing up necessarily. When most, 90% of their range was in northern Sonora and southeastern Arizona. Uh, Still the point, though, like publicly the perception there's like you know you guys know what i'm saying i know, like, I know like, what we, you're saying I, I, elk, elk don't not. eat people <laughs> and elk don't eat cows and elk don't interfere in the same manner that predators do yeah but at the same time though like i know when like even when arizona transported like our elk from our lands back to west virginia like people were still upset about that you know what i mean I feel... I think a select few. Exactly, but it's a select few. That boggles my mind. Why Why would? Why be upset about the, the... Because that's just the whole like mentality of like the human culture. And is the like, comments were like, well, Arizona Game of Fish better be getting something out of the better, deal. Exactly. Well, we have. We've, we've reintroduced species to other places. But we, I th- we have to trade them. We don't get any sort of financial value from doing this. We can't legally... But I feel like if, if we were to introduce elk, say like in the current 21st century... I think that there might be a similar reaction to intro, uh, as introducing the wolves. I really do because I feel like it's one of those things where as you know we're already established and through education and social media and all of the resources that we have today, there might be a way to fit like like someone might have a different like um, understanding or like. Um, so your argument is that if there were no elk and we were bringing in elk, that the that the that the public might have an outcry similar to as they are with the wolves, and that's not just because a wolf is a predator and an elk is you know an unglet or whatever. It's I feel like it's just one of those things where you're introducing a new species into like an already existing ecosystem, is where people like draw the line. If that makes sense, in my eyes, I don't know. It could be totally different. What's your thoughts on this, Josh? I'm curious. The the wolf thing, uh, that that's a that's an interesting conversation, man. Because if you look at the places like right now, okay, that have issues with wolves, okay, look like Idaho, okay, um, a lot of those guys up there, the elk hunters up there and stuff, they, I haven't heard one elk hunter up there that is for the wolves, right, and. Some people say that, like, oh, wolves, their, their main diet is, is mice. I've heard people say that and stuff, which I'm sure that they kill a lot yeah, of small right. animals. Like they that. only kill the old and weak. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it's been proven that wolves are an animal that thrill kills. Okay, so they'll... Thrill get, kills, you said. Yes. Like, they just do it for fun. They do, yeah, yep. because it's, in their, it's within their blood. It's their, in their, their instinct to do that. Um, guys, in the late season, I remember... Um, not to name drop, but uh, Corey Jacobson up in Idaho, mm-hmm. he he was doing a, a late season. I believe, it, yeah, he was wolf hunting. He found a, a profound amount of dead bulls. That was really interesting. I listened to that episode from from the from the the, the hands or, or teeth, if you would, of of wolves. Just dead elk, and no, they weren't eating them. They're just. I'm not them. sure if they were eating. I'm sure that some of them were eating, but like the 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 point of this of that. Is that they, they were mature, healthy bulls, like prime specimens too, not not yeah. old or weak or young. Right, exactly. The point of that is that they have a they do have a profound impact on the on the ungulate population. Uh, so particularly but, in the late season. I, I think the big thing with wolves and and why it's controversial in Arizona is right now we don't have a ton of wolves. We don't have the problem that right. that the north has with wolves. Right. But it's been the federal government's moving goalposts with recovery is when you look at recovering a species and the days of introducing new species like that don't 
that aren't native to this continent, like putting ibex in New, Me- New Mexico or or Aldad or or oryx, like that wouldn't happen today with the current climate. You couldn't do it. You you're not going to introduce some foreign animal. You you can get away with bringing back a species that was here historically, but with predators, it always seems to be the concern of overreaching federal government that it's never going to go back to state management if the if the federal government gets to dig their claws in and get invested in well, it. Well, man, like the history of it, like look at the they introduced wolves and they had like an object and the same thing with grizzly bears. Like they had like an objective number and they've been successful and they've been successful for a decade or more. Right, and they're just now getting to the point where we can actually talk about having hunts and the hunts actually going through in the right, end, not yeah. being caught in litigation yeah yeah it's, a, just, it's definitely like i'm sorry for cutting you out it's like definitely sadly it's like definitely like a political thing it's a political it, perception it, i know. think that elk can be destructive too though oh absolutely absolutely, well, absolutely. yeah absolutely you know? and i think that's something that's lost i mean i love mm-hmm. I love hunting elk, and I love the meat, and I mm-hmm. especially love the horns. And I, I think I'd, okay. I'd like to see every animal back on the landscape where it was, but some things, like grizzly bears, I don't think you could ever put back in Arizona or in the Southwest because of the political pressure. It would never happen in good faith that they would get recovered and that the state would then have management of them. Do you think they'd migrate down? Grizzly Because bear. now they're from Colorado. Because now there's talks. Well, they're migrating into Colorado. Exactly. So what happens if a bear walks into Arizona and takes up residency, and then a sow comes in? Well, then it has ESA protection, and you can't do anything about it. So right, but they're there, and 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 that's why they haven't done subsequent relocations of them is that they would have that ESA protection if they move mountain ranges and stuff mm-hmm. and go to new areas. Yeah. I, I think it's just super interesting, but it's something that crossed my mind. Let, like let them proliferate on their own from where they are right. currently, I think is the better option. Yeah. Politically and publicly. Yeah. I, there's, there's several different ways to look at it. And I think people should be open to it. And I also think people should be open-minded to the wolves. You know, I mean, yeah, just, no, I, pers- I agree. I yeah. pers- I'm with Dylan. Like I, I think having wolves on the landscape, like where they were originally, hey man, I think that's cool. Like they were here first, okay. But because it, like it's never going to be how it was because like humans have made an impact everywhere, and now it's our responsibility to manage what we've what we've essentially created. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, ironically enough, where we were just at in Unit One. Uh, near Mount Escadilla, they have reintroduced wolves up there, mm-hmm. and there's a you know family of five wolves that they said is sustaining a litter of puppies. Mm-hmm. So if it's sustaining a litter of puppies, then obviously one could assume that that specific uh, pack can grow and perhaps it could thrive. The one thing I'll say about the area that they're in, there's a substantial amount of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you look, there's something for those things to eat. But I think um, it's still up for interpretation, like the the long-term damage that you know, could happen with them, but we'll see like in that situation there, that's like a, they're, they're obviously not making a massive impact on the ungulate population. Yeah. Now here's the other thing. Okay. When people have issues with wolves it's often selfish. Okay. Cause you just said yourself, you're like, I love elk meat. Yeah. I love elk antlers. Yeah. Okay. It's a hunter thing. It's like if, if the wolves, like a wolf, there's an overpopulation the of wolves. Is let me kill an elk. Right, but... Like, I could take that thing home. They ain't gonna let me kill the wolf. Yeah, but if the wolf population was to grow at a substantial rate to where we could actually manage that it ourselves... That means that the damage has already been done, though. That, has it, though? That, that's, well, that's, that's the problem, is, is that, that it, it is, might get to the point of recovery, and then Arizona Game and Fish wouldn't have the ability to actually it, manage the species. But that's, that's, that's the, the question, though, is what is... Have they laid out what it is that's gonna make them turn that switch to where it will be a, a management concern is when they start I'd, what is it when they start affecting wildlife is it when it reaches a certain population i think is it when it affects the cattle i mean what's the where do they draw the line at where when we actually need to start managing this population i, I would i would think they, they keep changing the answer to all of that <laughs> I, well i think i think what they're doing is like i i think that they're going off of our northern brethren you know what i mean like they're they're going off of other other agencies experiences with these animals and stuff and um watching them kind of screw up here and there and then changing how they, how they're going to approach it you know uh, my only concern with it is 
if they try to establish them in places that they historically were not because the habitat is suitable for them. Sure. If they weren't there historically, even if the habitat is suitable, I don't believe they should be there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely a valid point. When you're elk hunting in September, hopefully you don't see a wolf. Right. I saw one. Hopefully you do, because that'll be cool. Yeah. Was that, but I'm, hopefully I'm it doesn't to, I'm trying screw to find up your way to, I'm trying to segue here. That, that was a, I like that segue, dude. I'm trying to, trying was, to segue a little I, bit here into um, what we want to talk about a little bit today. Um, and that's elk hunting in September, some late season elk hunts. Um, surprisingly, I think, and some of our listeners know, like we're predominantly bear group like yeah. we all love hunting bears um i've actually never we're bear I, focused but i think we're pretty equal opportunity yeah. oh equal opportunity <laughs> but what i'm saying is like i haven't ever hunted elk with any of you guys mm-hmm. so i'm like really excited to get your guys takes on this in fact i've only ever hunted elk once uh for my own tag and fortunate enough to have another elk tag this year He's along with josh S-O-B. i know <laughs> i'm lucky drew back-to-back years but no you know, idea how that happened you're, you're that <laughs> guy that pisses everybody off when oh, the draw <laughs> results come out and you make everybody complain that the draw system doesn't yeah. work it's rigged <laughs> i tell you what put in for the right hunts and you'll get a tag now, that's my philosophy <laughs> on that so you know it's taking myself back to last year i remember it was my first experience with this hunt and ultimately obviously i wanted to be successful i had my own goal i had my own standard of um, you know, what I wanted to shoot, but I'm trying to think like, I would like to think last year I considered myself an experienced hunter. I think a lot of guys in our States and, or in Arizona specifically are really experienced hunters and they've never killed an elk. I think there's a lot of guys that are in that boat, right? Maybe they've like killed other big game, but they've mm-hmm. never killed an elk. Um, I want to dive a little bit into some of the equipment that maybe somebody should take with them on an elk hunt. there's also a lot of guys that it's been 20 years since they had their last elk tag and they think they're <laughs> an experienced hunter, but it's been 20 years. Well, <laughs> exactly. I, uh, I noticed on my elk hunt, and I'm curious your guys' thoughts on this, my strategies, not only my strategy of how I hunted every day, and right now I'm kind of specifically talking about in September, assuming you're in a rut hunt, right? So that activity's taking place. Um, in my pack, I had my backpack, my kill kit, range finder, well, that wasn't in my pack, but it was with me, um, a call, and my bow. Maybe a first aid kit. Going off the top here. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on, like, the equipment setup, what you're taking into the backcountry when you guys are hunting elk? Anybody want to jump on that? No pack. You're, you're <laughs> a no pack guy. No pack. No fanny pack, no nothing. nothing. You're just bow and call. Leave, leave the pack in the truck. Okay. Okay. Most of the stuff in Arizona that's elk habitat is heavily roaded. And you, <laughs> you can shoot one and go back to the truck and then figure out how to recover it after it's dead. And it's usually not a big time concern to get it out, although it can be. But I'm completely opposite of Cole. My pack's on my back the whole time. Call I feel naked moving, without my matter. pack. I have my pack on the entire time. Yeah, I got to have the pack. I mean, it's not bad to carry a lightweight pack around, but I, like, would feel empty without it. What about you, Josh? What's your setup look like? I'm, my, I'm, my backpack is glued to me, man. Okay. Um, so, I'll, I'll, much like you, I mean, you didn't mention water, which I thought was very interesting. Well, I have that. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. It. Like, that's a given. Yeah. Water, some snacks. Um, <laughs> yeah, so water, food for the day, kill kit um i you know some game bags what's in your kill kit uh right now so i switched up a little bit this year um i actually went with a fixed blade knife i've been using a replaceable blade for the past couple years um and then for elk i'm gonna bring i normally like for deer i'll bring like two game bags and i normally only end up using one just to bone everything out and put it in one bag but for elk i'm definitely gonna bring four or five with me <laughs> so i'm i'm running a, a small fixed blade a mm-hmm. custom knife and then a havilon too with mm-hmm. a kajillion extra blades and and rubber gloves in the kill kit yeah rubber gloves and i actually don't like game bags because they tend to leak in your pack and on your pack and me and josh talked about this a couple rolls of black trash bags and yeah, keep the I, flies off them I, and could not I, I cannot bring myself to do that sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all preferences uh, yeah 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 you look like you were gesturing oh, the other thing in the kill kit saw. though that's different yeah is, is i always carry the wyoming saw when i'm elk hunting okay cutting leg bones if you have a skull cap and elk yes. you know 
getting rid of bones, cutting bones is way easier and less time consuming and tedious than trying to I do it all with a knife. That's one of those overlooked like items, right? It's only Maybe. like a pound and a half folds into a nice little case. It's in the side of my pack the entire time. Never notice it. Rarely comes out unless we're actually doing a wilderness hunt. Then it'll come out because it's extra weight. Yeah. So I should actually rephrase. I shouldn't say no pack. I should say a hydration pack. Okay. So when I had my elk tag, I was just running like a camelback. Uh-huh. Like Badlands had the little reactor. It was like a, a small. I don't run that anymore. Um, but it was just a light weight pack. It wasn't the exo that I normally run on, you know, majority of the hunts. Mm-hmm. Simply because I didn't really want to be hiking that, you know, I was doing a lot of, you know, just driving, you know, to points, ripping bugles, seeing if I could get a response and then going after them. It's where, like Dylan said, um, I just don't want to go back to the truck to get my pack to carry the oak out. Like, that's my thing. It like, depends on where you're at. But normally, like, see, I was hunting by myself, but there's other people up there. So it's like, I'm going to go back to the truck regardless because I'm going to get another army to come back and I'm yeah. going to carry this out. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, I think that's something that, like, I, I remember walking up on my elk. It's like, and I've seen elk, obviously, alive, like, very close within several yards. But when you have the dead weight of the elk in front of you, it kind of hits you just like the size of that animal is like nothing I have ever dealt with. It was extremely overwhelming. It was like just the amount of energy to try to angle its head for a photo. It was like, man, you cannot, they're not very easily workable. Um, In my case, it was on the hill on the side of a canyon, which made it even, it was like, man, I felt there was, it was literally a time where we had to roll it down to get it to a flatter shelf. Um, and you kind of just push it and hope like, all right, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens here. <laughs> Hopefully they, it stops at a better spot. Yeah, they are. Uh, <laughs> it's the, really the first word that kind of came to mind and not in a negative term was overwhelming. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of work to, to get those taken care of on the hillside. So you, you got your guys' pack set up. I think a conversation in itself, shoot, you can almost have a, a full podcast on it. What kind of calls do you guys take with you, and what is your preference? And I don't know, maybe I'll start with you, Dylan, because you got a pretty interesting take on this. Um, I was back and forth between just a standard reed cow call, and then I had a a tube that I was kind of two for one. I would make my cow calls when I wanted to make the cow call, and then I would bugle when I wanted to bugle. But let's say let's say it's open in the morning, and you're out on that hillside, and it's it's dark. You know, I like the strategy of trying to get in there when it's dark, mm-hmm. can't see nothing, you hear hear that call. Um, what is your go-to setup for a call? Um, well, uh, like as far as type of calls, uh, I'm always using a, a pallet plate reed style call. And I have a really old Carlton calls tube that's probably twice as old as I am. <laughs> I, use the, I use the Carlton from my tube. dad. Um, and... I like the sound that I get out of that better than any of any of the new tubes that I've played with. I, don't, I like the feel of that, the size of that. That Carlton tube, I, I think, is awesome. Um, and it's called in more bulls than I can count. Um, I'm really aggressive when I call it stuff, even the dark, locating, locate bugles and bugle a lot, call a lot. I, I want to play with elk that are going to play with me. And if I... I don't specifically, particularly on the archery hunts, um, in the early season, I'm not necessarily, and this is just my style, I'm not always going out and trying to target one bull. If I was trying to target one individual bull, found some giant, the technique's going to vary depending on the situation, but I'm usually just trying to find elk that are going to play with me. Particularly with a bow, it's not always a huge concern on how big the elk is. You're trying to find something in that range and something that's going to cooperate with a call. And I'm I'm not the expert as far as going in and killing elk that don't want to cooperate with a call. I don't know. Um, But I cover a ton of ground and call aggressively. Um, It's all situational. What what you do, though, um, for me, most everything that I've learned with it has been trial and error stuff. Just a lot of elk hunts, a lot of early season stuff with i've had three early archery tags now and and had a bunch of family tags i've helped on and and a handful of clients in there and and just a ton of time in the field that i've experienced experimented with how they'll reacted to you know certain calls certain aggressiveness levels and paying attention to kind of the tempo of what the elk is doing and my general 
tactic has always been basically trying to imitate what the elk are doing. Right. Uh, one thing that I took from you um, on my elk hunt was I was a little bit, in my head I thought, okay, my perception was if I want to kill a nice bull elk, I'm going to have to finesse it in with a cow call. Like I thought for sure that like that was just my perception. And I think that is something that people are wrong in because I found on my hunt specifically the biggest bull that I saw, it didn't come into a cow call. It came into uh, when I was grunting at him, right? So I would hit crack my bugle. What made that bull mad were my grunts. The little chuckles. And the, the little chuckles. chuckles at the end. That's what bridged him closer to me. It wasn't the fact. It was like he, the elk literally came to me with the body language like, oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, that's you're yeah. going to do that around exactly. my girls, you know? I'm the opposite of a finesse hunter. Aggressive going in after the bulls, aggressive calling, get them fired up. And I think more often than not, I feel like we're not having shot opportunities in those situations when we're trying to finesse too much and we're being we're too, being too slow in our movements getting closer to the elk when they're fired up and not getting in there and getting within that that bubble where they're responsive to a call and we're trying we're trying to pull them to us rather than get them get them located get into that zone and then get aggressive with them i feel like it and the experience that i've had with with clients and other people that i've hunted with that haven't had the experience around elk is being like go go if i'm telling you go you need to move like right as long as you sound like an elk and the wind is good and they can't see you keep going as long as their nose isn't going to get you and they can't see you, you're good go get in there and go get in close right which is which is opposite thinking of of a lot of people right like specifically when you you know you compare elk hunting in september to like say stalking deer in january you were like walking on eggshells yeah you know what i mean so when you say no no dude run (laughs) go go run in there um and the same thing i think the same thing the same philosophy goes with the whole calling thing like a big like you're absolutely right dude like i hear that too like a big perception in arizona Mm -hmm. is the whole cow calling i thought i needed to go buy myself a hoochie mama yeah Yeah. like i thought that was the only way i was gonna get it done right because because it's like a very delicate way of doing things right but Dude, you can pick an elk hunter out in the woods as soon as you hear that hoochie mama squeak. Yeah. <laughs> but and that's in, a person over in there. In some defenses though, like when you when you pull that hoochie mama like out of the package, like the first like ten calls, like it actually sounds like an elk. After it hits like eleven, twelve calls, it just starts going downhill real fast. <laughs> yeah. After after you've pumped it ninety four times at the same bull and it it's gets, not working. Yeah. It gets a little done. <laughs> But Dylan hit it on the head too earlier, which I just want to kind of agree with is it's totally situational. Oh, yeah. I mean, and what I've learned, you know, over the last couple of years of hunting, you know, the early elk is really pay attention to what that what gets that elk fired up. Like you noticed that it was that chuckle at the end of your call that got him fired up. <laughs> uh, I was midday walking so around don't, the woods cracking off bugles, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah. So like a lot of people, though, will go into it and will do that bugle, not you know, not put the chuckle at the end of their call and they're, they're sitting there thinking, well, what the heck happened to this bull? He was fired up yesterday. Well, you saw this last year. Cole got to come along on a, on an archery elk hunt last year and we had some elk that would get location responses from and they didn't like a whole series of calls and then we'd try something different and we'd get a response. Or they'd be fired up and aggressive and we'd be charging in there. We'd, we'd get within 100 yards. We'd have elk all over the place. We'd had a bunch of different elk we were playing with in this area and one particularly giant bull and it just never worked out when they were fired up and then at different times of the day particularly later in the morning when things calmed down we were only getting you know periodic location beagles and that's when we slowed down Mm -hmm. was later in the day and then we were more like deer hunting sneaking in on these bulls and and still getting within range and yeah I, i don't know how many times we were within under 50 yards of that monster bull Mm -hmm. probably a dozen times over over like three or four days on that hunt but each time we went after him it was a different technique depending on what the activity level of the elk were at that given time of day Mm -hmm. was he calling during the middle of the day uh yeah periodically he would rip bugles from his bed yeah Mm -hmm. so he'd he'd be locate bugle if we got within that bubble Mm -hmm. of he needed to let us know he was there Mm -hmm. um the bull was giant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he was a 370, 380 type bull. And with that particular elk, that elk wouldn't talk to us from a long distance. Like we had to be probably under 300 yards before he would actually respond. And he actually responded more consistently midday in his bed because we'd, we'd get into that bubble and he'd be like, I'm over here, stay away. Mm-hmm. Was he responding to bugles? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, only only bugles on yeah. that bull. All of his satellites, they would respond to anything. anything yeah. <laughs> and But that's the other thing too is um, you can't get in that same routine because I noticed when I had my tag, I got in, it's, it just seemed like I got in that same routine where I was going through the same repetition of bugles and cow calls and it was like, okay, I'm going to bugle once and then cow call two times. You really just have to hit it from different angles. You know, it's like a game of chess or, or a board game. You got to figure out, you know, what should be my next move and make sure that it's different from, your, you know, your standard bugle with, you know, three chuckles, you know, that everyone hears. Right. You know, maybe just do a short, you know, start of a bugle or, you know, maybe sound like a satellite bull. It just depends, you know, on on the situation and like i said that's key you know bring a little what i do is i'll bring sometimes a little notepad around and i can you know i'll just write down okay i did this i got a response i did this i didn't get a response different times of days i think that's critical and then you can just you know at the end of the night say you weren't successful day one well it's like okay this worked let's try this day two different times of days and i think that goes a long ways and it's it's simple to do you know and you right. see me too when when Things got really heated up with that bull, and we had we had bulls, fighting. two large bulls fighting in front of us, and kind of had a frenzy going on. <laughs> and at <laughs> this, and at the same though. time, I mean, we have two, three forty, three fifty class bulls fighting a three seventy, eighty class bull that we're trying to kill, and six or seven other satellites that are going around us on that hunt. And explain uh, to somebody that doesn't know what a satellite bull what that means. I have to ask the question, okay. you know, it's like, explain that to somebody that's listening to the podcast. When I was like, I just started throwing that term around, right? I was like, oh yeah, the little guy, that's the, one of those satellite bulls, you know? It's but it not always little though. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's I know, not but, always little. Okay, um, that's my point. The dominant bull, regardless how big he is, the dominant bull in the group, the herd animals, is it's the herd bull. It's the, the leader of the group of cows. And, and you'll know. And you'll, pretty much, you'll know which one's the herd bull, and a lot of times it's the most difficult one to get close to most of the bulls you're probably going to call in in that situation are the satellite bulls they're trying they're literally orbiting the herd bull right staying you know at that certain distance like when me and Cole were getting those midday responses and that bull was was giving us kind of language of i'm over here stay away yeah. from us not i'm going to get up and come to you he's like i'm here keep your distance this and- is my spot telling us to stay away and those satellites are, are in that perimeter that we had to get within before we were getting responses right. of that bull. And, but we called in satellites. Yeah. The satellites were way more responsive to calling in because they're looking for cows. Those are the ones we were calling in with cow calls. Yep. The satellite bulls, they're looking for that cow that was the straggler and got lost. And when we'd see one of them, that cow from that herd bull. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's... But the, and the thing with satellite bulls too is, most of the time they weren't coming in bugling they were coming in silent not making any noise and that's been super typical is the herd bull the dominant bulls have been making all sorts of a ruckus fighting doing all that trying to establish their dominance and the satellite bulls are literally orbiting staying at uh, you know around the perimeter of what's going on looking for that straggler cow trying to steal her and make off before they get their ass kicked by the by the herd bull (laughs) (laughs) josh uh you pretty much the same with the calling tactics. I know yeah. you've you've done a couple uh, out of state Colorado hunts, but yeah. your tactics relatively similar. Yeah, they are uh, definitely not an expert. Like I just drew my first Arizona tag this right. year. I congrats, still, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Pumped. Thanks. Um, still have I've shot a bull with my bow, but I haven't actually tagged a bull with my bow yet. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So um, hopefully that changes this year. But right, you got it, man. But my if, if I can if I can get a bear with my bow. Yeah. I mean, if I could get an elk with my bow, the dialed-in hunter yeah, yeah. could get an elk with his bow. Um, <laughs> but my experience with calling has been the same thing. Um, I think something important to point out with the whole just elk hunting in general, what I've noticed is a lot of people, uh, they'll just go out in the morning, come in, and then they go you out, back out all in the day. evening. I think midday is super critical to be out there because yeah. like how Dylan was saying, like that herd bull is 
if he gets antsy in the middle of the day, that means he wants to play. Right. Like he's fired up, right? So that's actually how I, like in Colorado, um, the bull that I did shoot, that's what happened. It was noon. Um, I, we glassed up these elk uh, from way off, got up into this thick timbered bench where they were bedding. And at about noon, the bull bugled on his own. Not to me. Like I didn't make a call. He just bugled on his own. So we made our way in silently without calling got into where I thought we were within a hundred yards or so. Um, and then tried to cow call nothing. He didn't do anything. I bugled at him. He bugled right back immediately. So it's like right there. It's like, I'll cut him off in that situation. Exactly. And, and, and that's how we ended up getting that bull into, into bow range was, uh, he was, he was hitting us back with, when we would bugle, we set up, my brother set up behind me. You didn't mention anything. I'm sure you guys do it, but you didn't mention anything about raking. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, which I think is super overlooked, right? It's like, this makes everything more realistic, you know? Don't use it a lot, but like it, talking the aggressive technique yeah. going in, breaking branches. Yeah. I've mm-hmm. like on the early muzzleloader hunt that I hunted with my uncle a couple of years ago, I called in a bull on that hunt. We were mm-hmm. in just thick junipers that you couldn't see. And had the bull coming in, but I wanted to know what he was before he got too close to us. We're hunting with a muzzleloader. He doesn't need to be archery range from us to shoot him. Mm-hmm. So I actually climbed up a tree on that hunt and kind of fell out of it coming down. Nice. And the bull came in to the tree that I fell out of because he heard all the, the limbs breaking and me coming right. out and, and trying not to break myself on the ground. But I just, my comfort was When things there. have been off and the calling stuff hasn't worked, I've called in bulls in just grabbing a big stick and mm-hmm. just prolong rubbing it on a tree and making as much noise as possible and had have bulls come in. So yeah, that so what uh, Cole was saying about how you kind of just have to feel it out, right? So like that was that's what happened. Like bull wasn't responding to cow calls. We bugled. Bull responded to that. Got in, and that's what we worked off of. And my brother's raking behind me with a tree. I'm cutting the bull off with really aggressive bugles, chuckling and lip balling and stuff like that. And the bull came right in. You I know? don't, I just didn't have the confidence in myself to like rake a tree, mm-hmm. you know, like I did, it felt so counterintuitive to what, right? what yeah. I'm used to hunting. Where Absolutely. Like, and mm-hmm. you talked about that a little bit at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, but it just didn't feel like that was going to be a strategy that was going to help me. I feel like that's the biggest thing for people that have only hunted deer and other stuff is they feel like you need, and you can kill elk this way. Be sneaky and get in there and go yeah, shoot yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do you can do it without calling on an early hunt. Just let them do the talking, sneak in there, hunt them like deer. That's fine. That's just not how I hunt yeah. for elk. It exactly kind of feels counterintuitive to give your position away at times <laughs> mm-hmm. and just make all sorts of noise. But I think it's way more fun when the elk are coming to you mm-hmm. than having to try to sneak in there because then it's just like any other kind of hunt. I think it, I think it's like timely though. Like I feel like if you're like how you you're saying like you guys when the elk is bugling you're gonna make your way in there to get into that bubble that you talked about. If you're just, I feel like, do you call on your way into that bubble? Depends on the situation. Because if I was thinking about that, I'm like, no, I'm not Pre- gonna do preferably that. Preferably not, because I don't want the elk to feel like I'm coming to it. Uh huh. I want to locate it from a long distance, right. and sometimes like particularly early morning, calm cool mm-hmm. you might hear an elk response that's a mile and a half away mm-hmm. and if you're confident that the elk is going to be there keep going in and hopefully that elk is responding you know in the black or in the gray light while you're moving mm-hmm. so you can keep a location but yeah if, if we move say um where we feel like we're getting close to that bubble now we don't know where the bull is. Yeah, I'm gonna stop yeah. and do a locate bugle and figure out, and then okay, maybe the bull moved 500 yards and he's off to the north now, and then make an adjustment of how we're going in and check the wind and work the wind going in. Mm-hmm. So whether or not I'm calling on the way into a bull that was responsive just depends on the activity level of the bull. And I feel, dude, I feel like a lot of people they get this notion because you, you hear like oh call like in certain areas like calling doesn't work like in in high pressured units but we were talking about a high pressured unit not too long ago and your advice to me on that was call your ass off exactly okay <laughs> it, which which is which which sounds counterintuitive but how i see that is like 
doing again what Cole said and feeling the situation out and like knowing when to call. Cover lots of ground. Yeah. The, the and the unit we were talking about has tons of elk, tons yeah, of yeah, elk yeah. habitat. It's a huge area, and and I've hunted it several times. And the whole technique has been to just cover as much ground as possible, finding those elk that were responsive. And over multiple hunts of doing that, now I know places where I can reliably go into and avoid the pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily roadless areas. Mm -hmm. It's like totally different than how we approach bear hunting. Mm -hmm. Totally opposite of it. Um, Because most most time we're elk hunting in Arizona, you're hunting out of the truck, you're driving around in the black light with a call out the window and unless you're hunting a specific elk that you're looking at a glassing point depends on what you're at but most of the time i feel like especially if you're in the pine trees you're not glass in that country no i don't even carry a tripod with me most of the time except if we're filming Mm -hmm. um just calling trying to get responses trying to find those areas and I think a topo map's super important. Oh yeah, on on an elk hunt, like I think a topo map's more important for every hunt. For but, every yeah. hunt, like but, a, like a physical map, not uh, not I, a I, GPS. Yeah, like, <laughs> GPS is okay, but you need to have a broader sense of it. So yeah. I think a physical map, I think, is more important on an elk hunt than any of the other hunts because you need that broad look on the landscape to know where all those roads go, know where the easy access points are, know where the majority of other hunters are going to be. And those elk, everybody wants to hunt like meadows and nice, open, pretty, right. pretty picturesque elk country. Like they're going to be on a postcard wallowing out in the middle of the swamp. But, mm-hmm. And as soon as the sun comes up, they're not there. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you, if you take the time to look at a map and you drive around a few times in the dark and on an early elk hunt calling in the morning, well before you can even go hunt, you get an idea of where the elk are. And as soon as the sun comes up, as long as they're talking, you have a you're going to get a directional orientation of where those elk are going, and then you're checking your map where they're going to, and then the next day, being where they're going, not starting where they're at. Yep. Being where they're moving to as soon as that that time frame where you're going to be able to hunt them, right. and, and that and that's that spot that I was telling you to look at on the map that particular area, mm-hmm. is <clears throat> in the middle. It's that transition zone between where they're getting pressured out of a couple of areas and they're they're passing through that zone but that zone on the map that we were looking at is so large that you have it it takes up your whole morning time frame and in in to midday that the elk are traveling across that corridor so you get tons of opportunity and there's looking at the map there's enough topography in that where you screwed up with one group of elk such a large area that okay you go and do it on a different area mm-hmm so one thing that I wanted to do on my elk hunt that like it, it felt a little bit more right. We're using the reed calls. Um, it just, for me, felt a little bit more primitive. Like it, it also made sense with, uh, bow hunting. Like early in my hunt, I was actually hunting by myself. So I didn't really have much of a choice. I had to kind of like adapt and overcome the circumstances. But for those guys that like fear it, I think that that is like just practice it a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like you anything else. You put it in your mouth and you drive back and forth from work and you yeah, use the Yeah, that's things. exactly what and I if did. If you don't know how to use a diaphragm call, go get a package of them, go get two packages of them, play with them, find the one out of six that you like and keep playing with yeah. that one until you figure it out. And there's You can do so much more with that call than using a, you know, a hand call. Yeah. yeah. You have so much more variation in the tones that you can do and I think part of what's nice about it is the irregularity of doing it it sounds more animal-like than just this you know squeezing a hoochie mama it's the same (laughs) note every single time or the other hand calls that are out there or even a even the the external reeds on the tubes are not Mm bad like you can make a variation different variations of sound with those but i think with a palette plate you're getting you can you have more emotion more emotion emotion in it you can you can control the volume level way better and you can go back and forth between cow and cow calf and mm-hmm. beagles and chuckles and and you can do half a note and you can cut stuff off and you can do it with a bow in your hand and a rangefinder in yep. the other and you can do it hands free yep yeah so if you're by yourself you don't you don't have to have you know your hands if you're archery hunting you can just have the reed in your mouth and you can let out a cow call yeah which brings me i have a question kind of relates to that if you are the caller like see so you have a caller for your like with your hunt um 
how far back are you from your hunter? Because you see in like hunting videos and shows that the caller will sometimes sit back from the actual hunter. Doing what? Yeah. What do you? How far back so are you normally? So Cole, Cole's from trying the to set up this situation of where the the elk are in front of the you have a hunter and a caller. You're working with two people. The elk are in front of you. Winds right. All that stuff. We're just going to yeah. say that those are perfect situation. Variable. Perfect situation. And what you're going to do is kind of fall back maneuver. Have the the hunter stay in one position where they have shooting lanes, which. Some of Arizona stuff, you can shoot any direction. There's not much cover, and some of it is thick and timbered, and you might have one or two shooting lanes, and you're trying to move the elk in front of the hunter and pull them to the collar, and the collar be a certain distance behind it. Again, I think that's all situational, how far back the collar is. Sometimes, and, and you saw it last year too, sometimes I was only 10 or 15 yards behind, where I could see from a different perspective and still have line of sight to the hunter and be able to signal them if they needed to move or signal them if they didn't see elk coming in. And some situations, if it was open juniper country type stuff, uh, I might have been 150 yards behind a hunter and be like, go out there to that tree because the elk should come by that when they come, you know, looking at terrain features, that that should be the door that the elk come through go position yourself there and we're gonna even even with more than one caller we've done it with three callers and one hunter me being the hunter in that situation being up in the corridor that the elk should come through and then having three callers on a ridge behind me trying to move the elk herd into where i could shoot them and in that instance it worked mm -hmm. yeah you won't when i was hunting by myself for the elk it felt like it was impossible to get the setup right but if you have another person i mean it's like the confidence goes up to set up everything seems uh, to work it, out it's a little way bit way simpler to have a caller yeah. and a shooter <laughs> and not not doing it yourself not that it can't do it yeah you absolutely certainly. do it. i had opportunities and even as the shooter i always have a call too in my mouth right to stop an elk when it's in the right situation or again judging what the elk activity is the hunter may need to be calling too to get them to come in and we've we've done a bunch of hunts where it's not just a caller and a shooter it's a caller and a shooter and a guy with a video camera behind you and and your buddy that's coming along for the first time too and everybody can kind of elk call and everybody has a different position and you know you're going to make a lot of noise coming in you might as well sound like a herd of elk coming in mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's say everything is going as planned on your hunt and you're having a great time and you're fortunate enough to, you know, make that good shot and get that ethical kill. And you got an elk on the ground. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about getting that elk from that spot where it died back to camp. And, um, again, going back to what I said earlier about the overwhelming amount of animal that's there in front of you, uh, do you guys got some tips for some of our listeners? Like, for example, maybe um, Dylan or Josh, whoever wants to pick this up. But one of you guys maybe got a got a tip for that process and how to make that boning out happen on one of these elk? Do it gutless. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> gutless. I do gutless even on javelina. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> explain explain to people what that means. Uh, so traditionally, right? You gut. You know, you gut the animal. You know, that's the that's the traditional pull, way to do it. Pull yeah. out the entrails, cut the esophagus, do all that, cut around the bum. Um, doing the gutless method, man, you just can st you can stay away from all that nasty stuff, you know, and just uh, either go up the belly or the back through the hide. Don't puncture the whole the whole skin. Okay, and you just start skinning. Once you get the you know, let's say you work on the hind quarter, get that skinned. Just cut that off, put that in a game bag, bone it out if you want to, and just keep going. Do that on all four quarters. Take the back straps off on each side of the spine. Right. Reach in, grab the tenderloins. Take so, and with that gutless method, yeah. right, so you get to the end of those back straps, you can cut in a little cavity, and basically yeah. you so could like almost so peel the tenderloins out. A little more out. detail Between, of the process, yeah, particularly ahead. like with an elk. Yeah. You're going to have a lot hard time. With smaller animals, you could take the quarters off back straps sure. so with an elk you're yeah. dealing half at a time it's going to be yeah. on one side or the other so i usually dorsal cut them 
you know, from the base of the tail mm-hmm. all the way up the spine to behind the ears, and I'll make the Y cut at that process like you're going to cape the animal. And then I'll come back and I'll make the the center line cut as if you were going to, you know, take the front half off for the cape right behind the point of the shoulder, leaving the shoulder height on for cape so the taxidermist can trim all the excess that's there. Okay. Cutting it, you know, a foot behind what you think you're going to need, cut extra and let them cut it later. And then I'll, I'll, before I do anything else, I'll then start down by the the shanks and split the the underside of, of the leg, like up to the, you know, inside of kind of the elbow and then up to basically the, the armpit kind of. Sure. And connect that line front and back legs. And then I'll, I, you know, start at the corner and peel those pieces of hide back. And like Josh said, pop that quarter off. Rear quarter super easy. Following following the pelvic lines, popping it off at the at the ball joint, taking that quarter, which at this point is fully skinned other than it'll have a hoof on the bottom of it. That's when I pull out the saw and chop it off. it off. You could take it apart at the joint with a knife pretty easy if you're not packing a saw around with you. And then going to front shoulder, that's even easier. You're just cutting the muscle membrane sure. between the scapula and, and the body cavity, pulling that off. Your quarters are already skinned. And then I'll work work the rest of the hide up to you know the back of the jaw on the neck and remove half of the the neck muscle that there's two muscles you know along the trachea that when you take them out on an elk they almost look like a tender or look like a back strap small yeah and then taking that that neck it's you know that same muscle that the back strap is on the neck all the way back to the shoulder and then the back strap to the point of the the hip at, in another cut and then to get the tenderloin out typically at that point on an elk or deer they're fairly bloated <laughs> and so i always keep gloves in the pack while i'm doing all this and when you're doing it gutless you save all the mess like josh was talking about you, you can get one hand dirty doing this process right and you're cutting the membrane between the the short ribs and the I guess intestinal wall membrane. Right. So you're pushing the abdominal cavity down away from the spine and then very delicately cutting that membrane just like you would cut the membrane between the hide and the muscle. Sure. And you can, on, on a coos deer, you can just about reach in there and use your thumbnail and almost scrape a tenderloin off of right. off, off yeah, of yeah. a deer and pull it out where, with one hand. For people that don't know, though, explain where the tenderloin is. Uh, so if... You'll have to take the back quarter off right. on, on an elk in, in this position that we're talking about and take the back strap off at this point. And when you're taking the back strap off, you're you know, following the spine and the curvature of the rib to do that. Kind of almost like filleting a fish, you're following the ribs. Mm-hmm. And then, so at the back of the ribs, you have three or four uh, ribs that aren't connected to the sternum and they're floating ribs. And then there's three or four that look like little bumps as you're feeling with your your finger down the spine where they're you know three four inches long of bone hanging out the side of the spine and you're cutting that membrane in between that so it's it's at the very far back end of the spine just before the pelvic bone attaches to the spine so between the rib the main ribs and the, the, between, the between the, the floating ribs yeah. and the hip bone yeah it's, and then at that point you flip it over and do the same thing on the other side right alternatively like so let's say you're not going to bone it out and you're not going to do it in the field you haven't the other option which is dialed in hunter's favorite option you could take your side-by-side or truck or rig <laughs> <laughs> off-road and uh into the forest right so arizona is one of the states where you know uh well specific forests or specific areas may be a little bit more restrictive but you can retrieve elk um in the field um uh, if it's safe and if the area permits it. So that might potentially be an option. Again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I mean, I kind of just wanted to carry mine out. It's like, I, I didn't think I was going to draw an elk tag next mm-hmm. year. So I kind of wanted to have the experience. Yeah. yeah. Kind of wanted that to take place. So, and I've done both methods. I've done the, the gutless method and I've tried to carry an elk out whole with come alongs. Like I was like 250 yards off the road and we had four guys and we just tried come along like tree to tree. Just do the gutless method. Just, just cut it up in the field. <laughs> just cut it it's up. E- even if you're like that close to the like that close to the road, 
particularly These, if it's flat. The like, elk are so just carry big. it two hundred yards. Yeah, <laughs> so, like they're so big. It's just it's it just. It's easier to, to do the Gellis method. As as we kind of finish up this episode, I did want to just like briefly touch on late season elk hunting because in Arizona there um, there is a lot of late season hunts that take place, archery and rifle. And what are your guys' thoughts on the difference? I mean, obviously they're not bugling, right? So obviously the rut is not taking place. Take away the calling tactics. Can you be successful still spot and stock what are your guys' thoughts on um hunting these late season hunts depending on the season or depending on the area what are your guys' thoughts about uh, making it happen in the late season like for example i know last year i helped on a on a late season rifle hunt and i really treated that hunt like it was a a deer hunt mm-hmm. okay so i found the country that i assumed the elk to be in i found a point that i could then see the elk from and we hunted it spot and stock rifle style what are your guys' thoughts on those late season hunts uh or the opportunity of drawing the tag i mean because if you don't want to wait for a rut tag you know you, there's there's opportunity to kill good bulls in some of these late season hunts uh but what are your guys' thoughts on that i think i think what you said is spot on i think it's you're looking at it more like a whether you're bow hunting because we have a late archery hunt too whether you're bow hunting or you're rifle hunting you're pretty much hunting them like deer. You know, you're you're sitting down, you're glassing. The, a lot of the bulls uh, end up in these nasty canyons and stuff after the rut, recovering and stuff like that. So once you do find a bull, and Dylan will probably know a little bit more about this, but from my experience, once you do find one, he's pretty much going to stay in that air, general area. He's hmm. not going to travel too much. That's something you agree with? Yeah, on, on the late season stuff, they seem to be a lot less mobile. And yeah, like you said, off in those sheltered areas, canyons, really terrible. If there's a lot of close lines together on the top of map, there's probably a bull elk there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably not where you want to pack one out from. But you know, that's where they're at. One thing that I found interesting about these uh, late season elk is I, I ran some cameras for like through an entire winter. And when there was snow on the ground, like the elk were still watering the same that they were like earlier in the season. We didn't touch on that, by the way. You think that's important? Like how important is water in in September? I think it's, well, the, the, just the activity of the bull elk alone is going to drive it to more likely to be at the water. That's how I killed my first bull in September on an archery hunt was sit in water the 14th day of the season and had a bull come in. The last evening. Yeah. So, I mean, people that, if you're one of the, if like, if you're one of those people that just like cannot work an elk call yeah. or, 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 walk. or you, or you, yeah, or you're, you're not that mobile, you know, or you don't know anyone that elk calls and stuff, you can, you can have a successful hunt just sit in water. Yeah. yeah. Or a wallow. Yeah. Or, wallow. Or, or same wallow. thing. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about earlier with the driving around and locating mm-hmm. bulls, driving around locating bulls, but, Still, we did like 64 miles in seven days last year mm-hmm. on the early archery hunt. And yeah, we spent a lot of time in a vehicle locating the elk with calls and then finding a spot, parking, walking in and and doing seven, eight mile days every single day going after elk. So it's it's still very labor intensive, even if you're use, utilizing the road system to get to different areas. So, so compared to late season hunting, would you is when you're like looking on a map, let's say you're you know you're scouting for a late season bull hunt, how important is where water is? Uh, depends on how much water is available. Well, that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah, it depends on where you're at and how much water is available. Obviously, if there's no water, there's there's nothing to support a lot of elk where you're at right um on the late hunts i'm a lot more sedentary getting to a glassing point and more like looking for coos deer and Mm -hmm. just glassing and waiting and totally different for what i'm doing in the early stuff the only time i'm getting up to look and glass on an early hunt is before the hunt starts not during the hunt right well all i can say is i'm as we talk about this, and I 
you know, Cole and I were out this weekend glassing up big velvet bowls. I saw that. Josh, dude. get ready, get ready, man. I, I can't mean, wait, dude. I'm getting really excited for my hunt. And I'm going to be excited to hunt for the first time with you, man, on an elk hunt. Going to hunt with Aaron with a bow. You got an archery tag. Yeah. Maybe I'll get a break to come over if, there. If it's ideal, we'll get a bow or we'll get a, a bowl early. We'll head over and help Josh, man. You, or you, know, where near I'm, you know where I'm going to be sleeping. And so, <laughs> yeah, dude. Then the week following, my cousin's got a, a early rifle tag, so. It's gonna be a lot of a lot of elk chasing for, for three weeks. Elk. You guys got any closing comments or anything that we missed specifically? You guys think? Oh. No. Go elk hunting. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Here's a, here uh, one thing. Okay, um, if you live in Arizona, okay, at the beginning of this, uh, I don't know if it was recorded or not, but Dylan mentions people waiting twenty years to to go elk hunting. If you're like building up points in Arizona. Okay, and you don't have any elk hunting experience, and then you draw that dream tag, you're not going to know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, like, there's a there's plenty of, like, out-of-state, over-the-counter options. So you can, and hey, you might, you might not be going out hunting 380 bulls and 400-inch bulls and stuff, but there's opportunities out there for you to actually, like, learn how to elk hunt. So when you do draw the tag that you've been waiting 15 years for or oh, whatever... Yeah. You're going to know how to hunt elk. The, the learning curve is <laughs> yeah. steep, man. I mean, like, I went from day one, opening morning, not having any idea what to expect. or And just by, like, day three, I was like, I've kind of got this figured out. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think I have an approach of how I'm going to make this happen. Mm -hmm. So that's an excellent point. Well, and to piggyback on that, too, even if you don't have an elk tag, there's nothing wrong with going out in the woods during oh. the oh, prime yeah. rut in Arizona and Depends Go. on who you ask. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I, depends some, on who you some ask. Some guys might not like some that. Some guys might not like it, but I know when I was up in college, up in Flagstaff, I'd go out. If I didn't have an elk tag, I was out there bugling, trying oh, to yeah. get responses and yeah, playing with elk just because that's practice. You know, practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, just the same with sports. It's same thing with hunting. The more you practice, the more knowledge you gain, the better hunter you're going to be. And just so everybody knows, the Arizona elk and pronghorn draw is always the second Tuesday in February. That's when <laughs> the draw deadline is. And I have the same philosophy personally as we've talked about with deer hunts when we did the draw podcast is I'd rather put in for the easier to draw tags and go hunt bulls five or six times over 20 years, mm -hmm. not wait for the early rifle tags because odds are with the amount of field time, you're going to kill a better bull than if you waited 20 years and had no elk hunting experience and then went out and burned your 22 elk points or whatever and go shoot a 330 bull nothing wrong with that but right. you can go elk hunting a lot more bring back a lot more elk meat and have a lot more fun if you're not applying for those hunts yeah being in the field hunting is a lot more fun than not being in the i'll field gladly hunting. help with those tags though yeah <laughs> so, well awesome stuff uh my last closing comment i do want to thank all the listeners for the uh for the feedback for the downloads uh we're still having a ton of fun with the podcast and we're looking forward to bringing you guys some more information i know i think that uh around july 20th we're going to do a podcast in the field probably going to be centered around bear hunting so i'm getting excited for that uh, but as always if you like the podcast please go ahead and either like share comment on it or even better tell one of your friends to to come check us out so other than that have a great night <laughs>